So I've been uh, reading this Advent season, uh, one of the Gospels, the Gospel of John. And a couple of days ago, I came to John 17, and I suspected there might be the possibility that I'd be teaching today. And so I decided, I think I know what I'm going to speak on, if asked. Now, John 17 uh, consists of what's called our Lord's High Priestly Prayer, just hours uh, before his trial and crucifixion, uh, he goes before the Father and uh, utters this truly extraordinary prayer. There's so much in here, we could spend hours and hours, and of course we will not. There are a couple of statements here that just leaped out at me, and I thought I'll address one of them and some implications. Uh, <clears throat> I'm going to read verses 6 through um, 9. So remember, this is right in the middle of this prayer that's being recorded. Jesus praying to the Father. Uh, he lifted up his eyes to heaven. That was the more of the biblical view of prayer. I know today it's often what we sort of bow our heads and close our eyes. The bowing of the head is sort of symbolic for some people of being uh, penitent, which is understandable, and closing the eyes, no distraction. I don't recommend you're doing that when you're driving your automobile and praying, of course. But the Bible doesn't require that you bow your head when you pray. There's nothing wrong with it. A lot of times the Jews would pray almost differently. They would open their hands and look up to heaven and pray. And so Jesus actually it says he lifted up his eyes to heaven and spoke. And so I'm just going to read verses 6 through 9. Jesus speaking to the Father, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Oh, I'm sorry. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, for they that they may be one, even as we are one. I'm going to read a few more verses here because it's so powerful. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except for the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. 
I'd like to stop there because that last expression is the one I just want to talk about for a couple of minutes. Jesus says, I'm not praying only for my disciples who were there around listening to him, but also for those who believe in me through their word. A couple of things really occurred to me, and I was thinking about my mom and her condition and likeliness of going to meet the Lord, and of course, Connie's mother passing away and her faith. And I thought, just as all of us have a physical family tree, we can trace our physical lineage back, of course, um, all the way to the Garden of Eden, if we had enough information. But most of us can trace back maybe to grandparents, great-grandparents, those who study family lineage or family trees can trace all the way back, maybe even to the 18th or the 17th centuries. People really do a lot of research in that. And it's very interesting to find out those who have been our predecessors, who've gone before us. But what Jesus is saying is that each of us also has a spiritual lineage. And Jesus said, I'm not just praying for you disciples, those whom he originally called. I'm praying for all of those who will believe through their telling of the gospel. And by implication, all of those down through history who will have believed, who heard from those original apostles. Now, if you think about it historically, that is quite extraordinary that all of us heard the gospel somewhere. Most of us here, perhaps from godly parents, some from outside in a a church youth group or in a church somewhere, we heard the gospel. But they heard the gospel somewhere. And you could just sort of move back historically. And when you move all the way back, we go right back to the first century A.D., and it all just started right there. Isn't that remarkable? And for us here, historically, we would have, because of our uh, <clears throat> history and ethnicity, it would have been no, uh, likely Northern Europe. Ours could be traced back to Northern Europe, to England or to Germany, perhaps France or somewhere. But then if you keep pressing it back, that's not where the gospel started. It actually started in the Middle East. It started, of course, in ancient Israel with our Lord himself. We could trace it all the way back. And it's a blessing to remember that there were people back there historically whom we will never know, perhaps until we see the Lord, who were faithful to the gospel. And because they were faithful to the gospel, we heard the gospel. And Jesus Christ himself was the one who prayed, not just for his disciples, but he prayed for those who would believe the gospel and who would turn around then and live and declare the gospel all the way down through the generations. And one day the entire harvest will be full. Everyone that is God's chosen will have been saved and then it'll be over. And that leads to the second point of this, and that is if you noticed in this passage, Jesus said, I don't pray for the world but for those that you've given me out of the world. So we have to face squarely, right in the eye, God's elective purposes. That's not a really popular idea in our age, which is very egalitarian. It's very, well, everybody should always get the same chance. And it's just not fair if everybody doesn't have the same thing. And God wouldn't be the right kind of God if he doesn't just give everybody the identical chance to be part of his own. But we really have to obey and abide by what the Bible itself teaches on this point. And it's quite clear 
that the Father actually gave specific individuals, and those of us here, and all of us here I know trusting in Christ, he, he gave us as a gift to his Son. So it's not just a mass of humanity out there. Though the Bible teaches that in some sense Christ certainly did. It says, the Bible does, that Christ died for the world. And yet in some special sense, we are God's chosen ones. Now, it's true that we're God's chosen ones through grace. It's not because of our goodness or our righteousness. But we're still God's chosen ones. I want to press this point on one uh, more specific, because you'll hear a lot of talk these days, or at least this idea, well, Christians need to be very careful that they don't pretend like they're better than everybody else. Well, if that means that we should not be proud, that's true. However... If Christians aren't better than non-Christians, why be a Christian? Well, of course we're better. We're better by grace. But we are better because God has chosen us and he has poured his spirit into our hearts and he has forgiven our sins and he's justified us and he's caused us to walk in, in his way. So never be shy about saying, well, one reason I want you to be a Christian is not just because God loves you, he does, but God wants you to be a lot better than you are. You're a sinner against him. And he can change your life. I mean, being a Christian is a better state. Otherwise, why be a Christian at all? So that's part of God's elective purposes. And then there's a third and final thing. And that's just this little expression that to me is so um, fraught with meaning. Jesus says, I've prayed for them. Now, we, we pray for one another, and there are great burdens and trials and difficulties we have in our lives. And all of us here, specifically recently, have gone through some. One of the great teachings of the Bible is not just that we pray for one another, but that Jesus Christ himself prays for his people. Now, we might scratch our heads at that at some point, because we say, well, wait a minute. I mean, Jesus is God. He's fulfilling his purposes. Why does he need to pray? Well, Jesus is, in his humanity, is completely God, but also completely man. And if you read the book of John, and I would urge you if you haven't lately, he's totally reliant on the Father, his Father for everything. Because of that, he lives a life of utter dependence. So he's constantly in prayer. Now think about this with me. If Jesus was the Son of God, sinless, and he needed utter reliance on the Father at all times for his strength, for his sustenance, for his very life. Don't you think we as sinful people would need to rely on God at all times, whatever the situation? And I mean this in very specific, even small ways. Beware of people who say, well, there are some matters that are just not of much consequence. You don't really need to, God's not interested in whether you have just hurt yourself a little bit. He's not interested if you make it to an appointment on time. Those are, don't bother God with that. But that's really saying that God isn't interested in every detail of our lives. If there's a real need that you have, say, God, please help me. That's one of the sh shortest and best prayers in the Bible. God, I need you. I need your help. God loves those prayers because it demonstrates our utter reliance on him. So, in the book of Hebrews, speaking of Jesus praying for us, the scripture says that he is seated today in the heavenlies, interceding for us as our great high priest. 
whenever I go to bed at night, one thing I almost always, sometimes forget, but almost always remember to pray for, and I hope you will, is, Lord, while I am sleeping, intercede with the Father on the things that I've prayed about. Please go to Him and and pray to Him that He will do these good and righteous things. And I pray to the Holy Spirit. The Bible says in another text, the Holy Spirit knows the deep things of our life, and He's able to communicate things that we can't even communicate. You've all lived long enough to know that there are sometimes some deep feelings you have in your heart that it's impossible even to put into words. You just... Words fail you. You're talking to someone and you say, I don't know quite how to say this. I know what I want to say. And it's not that I lack the educational capacity. It's my, my feelings and the truth that's overwhelming me is so large that I can't compress it into language. But the Holy Spirit can. And he's able to take those thoughts that we have that we can't even express to those closest to us and convey them to the Father. There is, in conclusion, the book of John teaches the glorious promise that if we rely on the Son and if we want to glorify the Son, what we ask in His name, He will give. And so one of the great glories of praying to Jesus Christ is this, though we might feel weak and feeble to go to the Father. We shouldn't because we belong to the Lord too. But even if we feel that way, how could we ever say that God will turn down the true request of his Son? And so we say, Lord Jesus, this prayer of mine is weak. Maybe it's mistaken. Maybe it fails. Maybe I don't understand. You take this prayer and make it right and bring it to the Father. Isn't that amazing? It's almost as though Jesus is our spiritual translator. We pray because we're sinful. We don't always pray prayers that are correct. We're well-meaning. Lord, here's what I would like. I think it's right. And the Lord's thinking, no, probably some of that's not right, but some of it is. And so, as it were, he goes to the Father and says, what she's really trying to say is this. Isn't that a beautiful and powerful truth? That The Lord Jesus intercedes for us. He prays for us. This also takes a lot of burden off our shoulders. We're called to be faithful. But ultimately, what we can accomplish and uh, what God can do in the earth is not ultimately dependent on us, but on Him, and that's why we need to live lives of utter reliance on Him. Well, I'll stop there. Are there any questions or comments? A lot of things for all of us to think about, for sure. Well, if not, should we close in prayer? We can always talk about more later. If we... Yes, we can. All right. Father, thank you for the truth of your word and that at any time we can open it up and learn and that your spirit can change our hearts and lives and rebuke where we need to be rebuked and edify where we need to be edified and instruct and enlighten. Thank you for these truths we glean as it were, looking over the shoulder of these disciples as they listened 2,000 years ago, as your son prayed to you this prayer that we almost don't want to approach too closely to because it is so holy. And yet it is all about us, Father, and and your great love for us. Please do for us things as you promised, as prayed in Isaiah 
Isaiah chapter 64, do more than we can ask or think. Rend the heavens and come down. May the nations tremble at your presence. And Lord, to do more for us if we just wait for you. Help us to learn to wait for you and trust in you. Father, we pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord and King. Amen.